allows me to slow down and get my adrenaline down and focus while I'm also managing the room. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Pete's Grit Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current PICU fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a Peds ICU fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Peds Crit Podcast? Yes. Peds Crit is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We are working with pediatric critical care educators, mostly across the United States, but also internationally, to create high-yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider interested in medical education and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email or our website at pedscrit.com. We're hoping to create a space to further add to the online community of Peds ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics. Yes, we can't wait to hear from you. Please email us. Zach, who are we talking with today? So today we're speaking with Gina Patel and Alyssa Stoner. So first, Alyssa is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine and is a pediatric intensivist at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. Yes. And Dr. Gina Patel is a second year peds critical care fellow at Children's Mercy. She's from Atlanta originally and did her residency there. In these next few episodes, we're talking about the essentials of intubation. This is a multiple part series, and so you'll have to stick with us. And on part one, we're focusing in on intubation checklists and the use of a handy soap me mnemonic to make sure you have everything you need when it comes time to intubate. Yes, a comprehensive conversation and so vital to our care. So let's get to the episode. Fantastic. Thank you so much for listening to Crit. We are here with Dr. Gina Patel and Dr. Alyssa Stoner to talk about the essentials of intubation. Where are you two coming to us from today? My name is Alyssa Stoner. I am one of the critical care faculty at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm Gina Patel. I'm one of the second year critical care fellows also from Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. Fantastic. Shall we get right to the content? Yeah. So when I talk about essentials for airway preparation and intubation, I really like to use an example to kind of guide us through this scenario. So the case that we're going to talk about is a three-month-old female. She has bronchiolitis. And this year, it seems to be rhinoenteral and not necessarily RSV. And her weight is six kilos. So she, in, while you're caring for her, has developed several episodes of true apnea. And you, as the pediatric resident, pediatric critical care fellow, have decided she really needs intubation. So you're waiting for a in the PICU, but you need to prepare for her intubation and support her airway with CPAP while you're getting things ready for her. So Gina, what kinds of things do you consider um, that you need when you're getting ready to intubate these kiddos? So for me, when I'm thinking about intubating a patient and trying to get the room prepared, I really think about the soap me mnemonic. So going through that, I think about, do I have my suction set up? Will I need multiple suctions available, especially if I know that the patient has pulmonary hemorrhage or at risk of pulmonary hemorrhage? What kind of oxygen do I set up? So is my bag working? Does it inflate? Sometimes you can have faulty equipment, making sure my flow is at least 10 to 15 liters on the flow meter, making sure I have the appropriate size mask attached to the bag as well, and making sure I'm at 100% oxygen as I'm setting up the room. 
And then the next thing I look at is what's the age and weight of my patient? And that will prepare me for what type of airway equipment that I need to set up. The other thing I like to also know is that what kind of past medical history does the patient have? Is this kid going to be a premature infant? Have they been intubated in the past? So if I have time to do a quick chart review as I'm waiting for everything to be set up, because, you know, in the ICU, we're doing more multitasking generally. And so if I get a chance, can I look up any past information about the airway of this patient? And a lot of times you don't have that information because they've never been, they've never had a procedure, they've never been in the ICU or intubated. I'm a worst case scenario type of person. So I know what kind of equipment that I like. And I know that I like to always have a backup ready. So for my airway, do I want to use a Mac or a Miller blade? And I'll have Alyssa kind of go through either one. But, you know, given that this is a three-month-old infant, I'd likely choose a Miller blade, probably going to use a Miller one. Mm -hmm. Just looking at the age and the weight, I would have the respiratory therapist also pull out a CMAC just as my backup. So my attending, if I was having difficulty intubating, then my attending could also utilize a CMAC or I could utilize a CMAC so they can take a look at the airway with me. And then the other thing is an LMA. I would also have that available for a six kilo. So LMAs are distinguished based on the weight of the patient. So five to 10 kilos, 10 to 15 kilos, et cetera. So if I know that the patient is roughly about six kilos, then I just have the RT habit pulled up. And then the ET tube, you know, what size ET tube, the general equation that I just do quickly in my head is age divided by four plus four. And it's good to know if you have a microcuff ET tube versus not a non-microcuff ET tube. And then just having one size smaller ET tube pulled as well, just as a backup mm-hmm. in case you had trouble if there's any upper airway edema. And then making sure there's a stylet, making sure the cuff on your ET tube works or not. And one of the biggest things as a brand new fellow that Alyssa taught me is always check your own equipment. So she really made it a point so that I know how to place a stylet in my own ET tube. I check my inflate and deflate my own bulb because there will be times where you won't have a respiratory therapist doing it for you, or you have someone that's brand new in training and they forget to deflate the bulb after they inflated it. And so you never want to intubate with an inflated cuff at the end of endotracheal tube. So just knowing how to check your equipment from that standpoint. I believe I got all the airway equipment, unless Alyssa, you have anything else you want me to add. And then, you know, making sure you have your PD cap, that's also weight-based as well. Your personnel, so P for personnel. Do you have your RT there? Do you have your bedside nurse there that knows your access and going through, you know, what kind of access, because that's going to determine what type of sedation you give and how to give your sedation and any other rescue medications or fluids that you may need to give and positioning. So if the patient is less than two years old, do you need to put a shoulder roll on the patient? Are you anticipating that the patient will need a cricoid pressure based on their anatomy, um, based on their age? And then M is for medicines. So what kind of sedation are you planning to use? And based on the pathophysiology of the patient, whether it's sepsis, et cetera. And lastly would be equipment and everything else. But those that's generally the checklist that I go through as I'm preparing for the patient either to come to the PICU or if they're already there and just making sure so that nothing is missed. And if you keep a certain checklist every time, you're less likely to miss anything. And then you're going to also be able to prepare for any negative outcome that can potentially happen. 
Hey, Gina, that was fantastic. So being one of the younger learners here, let me just go through that again, and make sure I got it. So mm-hmm. you use the the mnemonic SOAP me. So S-O-A-P-M-E. So S is for suction. Make sure you have all the appropriate types of suction you need for your patient. Oxygen, so oxygen delivery system, whether that's a non-rebreather or high flow nasal cannula. Airway equipment, you kind of detailed that for us. P for personnel or even patient positioning, making sure you have everything set up ideally for for your patient. And then M for medication and then E for monitoring equipment. I feel like I got that. That's perfect. I was going to ask what you thought were the highest cognitive load steps of the process. In my mind, it's the selection of the blade size and the ET tube size, but I'm wondering if you agree. Initially, when I was first starting to intubate and having to do the math of picking the right size. But for me, when I look at the patient, I can just tell you what size I want because I know physically what the blades look like. Mm -hmm. And so I can just look at the patient and tell you what size Macromiller blade that they will likely require. And then I always have them pull up an extra one too. They don't have to set Mm -hmm. it up, but they can always have it available on the airway cart. And then the ET tube, it's the same thing. So initially I didn't have the experience. And then when you're like getting nervous, you forget how to do the math and you're, Mm -hmm. you're like age divided by four. But eventually you get into the groove of it. If you do it after first few intubation attempts and you start recognizing like what age groups typically need, what type of ET tube or what size ET tube. And so you just can kind of guesstimate and then always have a backup available. If you have any issues, then you can use the backup as well. Yeah. So I just wanted to point out a couple of things when we're talking about cognitive load. It's interesting when you think about the early learner versus somebody who's a little bit of a later learner. So somebody who's in their third year and trying to develop their leadership strategies versus the first year fellow who is looking at the airway and saying, oh my gosh, I have to get this endotracheal tube inside this little hole. How do I do that? What do I need to do? And so certainly kind of at the beginning of your learning strategies, kind of thinking about just the size and positioning and making sure you have the right equipment seems to be the most cognitive overloading component. And as you get into being more of that third year person who now you're not only going to be responsible for getting the breathing tube in, but you're also responsible for managing the room and making sure that not only do you want to get the tube in, but you want to make sure that the kid doesn't arrest and that there isn't multiple traumas to the kid's airway. Trying to develop those strategies become more of your priority. I think that it's great that you brought that up. A couple of things that I wanted to point out that Gina kind of had mentioned and we alluded to is I think making sure that you know who's in the room with you is also very beneficial and knowing that level of experience. Sometimes, you know, if you have a new orientee nurse, they may need more direction than somebody who's been there for an extended period of time. So understanding who that personnel is with you is very helpful and making sure that you have the appropriate positioning devices. So Gina had mentioned from a positioning standpoint, people who are comfortable intubating adults get really nervous about kids because they're like, oh my gosh, the airways are really hard. They're not used to where their areas are. They're small. They're more anterior. What do we do to help facilitate that? Whereas I'm super comfortable with that smaller airway and I look at an adult patient and I go, oh my gosh, that airway is so big. What do I do with it? And so understanding that different body habitus are going to impact your positioning. And so for a pediatric patient, they have a large occiput, particularly those infants. And so having a shoulder roll is going to be helpful in that situation. 
as they become older and more school age, you're going to transition into um, more of like a standard adult patient and putting them in the standard sniffing position with maybe just a small pillow under their head. And then when you get into the obese teenager, you're really getting into an obese adult and thinking about how that positioning might be a little bit differently. And honestly, I would always reach out to my ER residents who have a lot of comfort intubating these larger patients and say, what strategies have you guys taken? And we kind of hear things like, oh, we put them on a wedge or we actually Mm -hmm. intubate them on a three degree incline. And so thinking about those components as you kind of transition into becoming more comfortable with airway in itself. Adding to that, Alyssa, recognizing when you could potentially have a difficult airway, because when you sedate and possibly paralyze a patient, you could lose the airway, may not be able to support them, bag mass ventilation. So do your personnel also need to include anesthesia and ENT at bedside? Or do you just need to skip that altogether and go to the OR and get them intubated under that setting? So being able to recognize that on your initial evaluation is also very, very important. And what specifically would you be asking about? I know that this is a topic in and of itself, but any any big red flags? Anatomically, I think knowing what they look like, just assessing, you know, are they microgonathic? Do they have significant macroglossia, external neck swelling that could be causing external compression of the airway? Once again, we talked about the anatomy of it. And then do they have like any sort of mediastinal mass that could be compressing their vasculature and their intrathoracic cavity? that could potentially alter your cardiopulmonary interactions as well. And so that wouldn't necessarily be difficulty in putting in the breathing tube, but you can have some very negative consequences once you do intubate the patient. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Alyssa. Not specifically, but I think you bring up a good point of what what do you look for? And some people will look at the mal and patty classification and how wide you can open the mouth in addition to what they look like anatomically and looking for retro or micronathia. So those are the big things as well as kind of limited neck motion and range can be uh, impactful. So, you know, a trisomy 21 patient, do you need to worry about that? And when it comes to looking at the patient, do they have a C-collar in place that might inhibit your ability to extend their neck? Are they on C-spine precautions? Gotcha. So once we kind of go through that process, I think the other thing that's been brought up that has definitely been demonstrated to reduce the frequency of adverse effects is the process of doing checklists. And so there is a group that has provided checklists for the pediatric population in the setting of transport that is provided on our blog post, and they did a really nice job of outlining their equipment as well as their plan and then what's specific to their patient. And if you go through these checklists on a routine basis, it has been demonstrated to actually decrease the risk of adverse events, particularly in the out-of-hospital setting, but it has also been demonstrated in the in-hospital setting. And it's helpful to know institutionally if your process or your PICU, so it's helpful to know what your institutional checklist might include. Mm-hmm. So as we know, across the nation, there may be a different checklists for each institution. And so knowing what your resources is probably the most helpful piece of information that I can input upon you. Mm-hmm. But this particular checklist starts with their plan and it talks about really understanding what your indication for intubation is, understanding if you need additional assistance. So we've already alluded to that. Do you have an anesthesiologist or an ENT? colleague that you can reach out to, 
understanding what the team roles are. So when you walk into the room, if it's an RT that I have not worked with before, I often will walk them through how I perform my intubations. So I tend to like to use a two-hand maneuver with the patient while the respiratory therapist will provide the bag mask ventilation. And then the other piece that I impart on them is that when I'm asking for the endotracheal tube, I usually say I can see cords instead of having to say, please hand me the endotracheal tube. That's too many words while I'm looking at somebody's airway. And so I usually share that with them up front. And it's helpful for them to then anticipate what they can do for me. I plan for the difficult intubation, just like Gina had mentioned, having backup equipment available. And so having that LMA available, having a backup size endotracheal tube that may be styletted already, and then knowing what your step C plan might be, oh, we're going to have to call ENT or we're going to have to call anesthesia and then those medications. And then the next piece is the development of the equipment. And so what we'll talk about is how you develop what size you want for and what type of blade you want. Do you want a Miller or a Mac? Do you want a cuffed or an uncuffed endotracheal tube and what size? And then understanding, do you have your suction set up like we talked about? Do you have your tape? Do you have your stylet? Do you have your way to verify your breathing tube? So not only do you need a stethoscope, but you probably need some end title as well. And that also can be specific to your institution. So do you have it connected immediately to your ventilator or is it connected to the monitor on the screen? Or do you use the PD color cap changes? Or do you do a variety of both or a combination of both? Do you have your ventilator and is it set up appropriately? And do you have your alternative airway adjuncts? And then the last piece of the checklist that this particular checklist covers is the patient. So optimizing patient equipment, which we've already addressed. Understanding does your IV work? So it is the worst case scenario when you go to intubate somebody and you go to give them meds and your IV isn't working. So then your backup plan, do you want to get another IV? Do you put an IO in? Are you going to do IM meds? So understanding what that might be. And then indication for nasal gastric emptying. So do you need to decompress their belly? So is this a kid who's been on non-invasive support and their belly is ginormous and they don't have a way to decompress their abdomen? You might want to drop an NG before you intubate. I've definitely seen it multiple instances where we've had kids arrest because their bellies are so blown up. So making sure you kind of consider that. And then monitoring. We didn't really talk about monitoring. So what do you want for your monitoring? Great question. I mean, this is another part of setting up the room that I, I automatically also work on. And that's I look at my monitor and make sure we're getting blood pressures at least about every three minutes, especially if the patient doesn't have an art line. And if they do have an art line, is the art line reliable? And even then, I probably just have a cuff going every three minutes or so. And I make sure I have the pulse and the audible pulse beeping that's available on most monitors in the ICU. So I turn that on, but make sure it's not, make sure it's loud enough for you to hear Because like Alyssa said, sometimes you might be the only provider in the room at certain moments, especially if you're the only faculty member in the ICU, depending on what your work environment is. Usually not the case in fellowship. 
but you want to make sure it's loud enough for you to hear so you know how the patient is doing hemodynamically, making sure they're not getting bradycardic and whatnot, but you don't want it to be too loud so that it's taking over and it's difficult to communicate or people are having to shout over it just to communicate with each other. And then the other big thing that's sometimes missed is making sure your blood pressure cuff is not on the same extremity as your pulse oximeter. Because then when your blood pressure is going off, <laughs> your <laughs> saturations drop and you're like, whoa, is it? And it's a, you go into panic mode and you're like, wait, is it? Is the patient going into respiratory failure and arresting or about to arrest? Or is it just mechanical and I'm really just doing it because we're running the blood pressure? And then I usually like to get a whole set of vital signs. I'm not recording them, but I want to know what the hemodynamic status of my patient is before I'm giving meds, before I'm starting the procedure. And that will also allow me to anticipate what to expect as I'm trying to intubate the patient or once I do intubate the patient in terms of cardiopulmonary interactions. It's very important. Yes, I agree to make sure that your blood pressure cuff and your pulse ox are on opposite extremities. It'll save you a lot of um, stress and anxiety when you're in the midst of intubating. The other piece that we didn't discuss, but is also very important, particularly actually in any patient population, is making sure that your patient is pre-oxygenated. So in whatever form that might be. So I think Zach had mentioned a non-rebreather or a high flow. If you have a patient who has acute respiratory failure and is on non-invasive, that is an option as well. So typically the first thing I do when I walk in the room and I'm getting everything set up is I'd go and turn the kid to 100% and make sure, hey, we're we're going to fill up that FRC full of 100% oxygen. And so if we do an RSI and the patient is apneic, we have some wiggle room. Or if we're utilizing our interface to kind of help augment our intubation, then we have some wiggle room as well. So before we move past checklists, it's easy for me to see how in a controlled environment, a checklist would be really helpful. How does that change and how might a checklist be even more helpful in those kind of crash intubations when things are kind of going downhill relatively quickly? Honestly, I, I still run through the checklist. The more you do it in a controlled setting, you're still doing it, but you're just doing it faster. The more you get comfortable, I'm, you know, you're doing multiple things at once and you might be setting up the suctioning, you know, the suction yourself and making, checking the equipment because everyone is, you know, has their role and everyone's just trying to rapidly get things together. But if I'm starting to bag the patient, I'm also checking, you know, looking behind me and making sure my flow meter is set up and mm -hmm. I'm pre-oxygenating appropriately, but I still run through the checklist regardless, because it kind of also allows me to slow down and get my adrenaline down and focus mm -hmm. while I'm also managing the room. And then it assures that you haven't missed anything and that you will have a higher chance of success. I understand that in those high risk procedures, you're actually at higher risk for making mistakes. So having that checklist so everybody can be on the same page, it makes a lot of sense. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pete's Grit. Please remember that everything discussed is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are also their own and do not reflect the official positions of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscritpodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out pedscrit.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscrit on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>